0: Welcome to the Annals of Internal Medicine, April 20th, 2021, podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Lane, Annals Editor-in-Chief, with some highlights of new material you'll find if you go to annals.org. I know how busy our listeners are, so let's get right to the new articles. Online physician ratings and reviews are increasingly available to the public through commercial rating sites and health systems. Although older adults visit physicians more than any other age group in the U.S., Little is known about how this group uses and perceives online ratings and reviews when choosing physicians. On April 13th, we published the results of a nationally representative U.S. survey that found that more than 4 in 10 U.S. adults aged 50 to 80 years have used online physician rating sites and trust them almost as much as recommendations from family or friends when choosing a physician. Women, people with higher levels of education, and people with a chronic medical condition are the groups most likely to report using these reviews. Researchers from the University of Michigan and the VA Center for Clinical Management Research used data from 50- to 80-year-olds participating in the Michigan National Poll on Healthy Aging to measure and identify characteristics associated with use and perceptions of online physician ratings and reviews. They found that while many factors were influential when older adults were selecting a physician, online ratings and reviews were very important. Other factors that older physicians rated as important ranged from whether the physician accepted their health insurance, 93%, to whether the physician had the same race ethnicity as them, 2.4%. According to the researchers, these findings should prompt policymakers and clinicians to ensure the validity and reliability of online rating information and educate patients about how to best use this information in their decision-making. Also published online on April 13th was a new Annals Beyond the Guidelines Grand Rounds that features a cardiologist and a cardiothoracic surgeon debating the risks and benefits of transcatheter aortic valve replacement or TAVR, versus surgical aortic valve replacement for a patient with severe symptomatic aortic stenosis who was at low risk for surgical complications. All Beyond the Guidelines features are based on the Department of Medicine Grand Rounds at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston, and include print, video, and educational components on annals.org. Aortic stenosis is common among the elderly, and severe symptomatic disease is typically fatal without intervention. Surgical aortic valve replacement was the standard of care until transcatheter aortic valve replacement was shown to have a lower mortality rate in patients at the highest surgical risk. Recent recommendations suggest that transcatheter aortic valve replacement may have benefits for patients at intermediate risk as well. Whether or not these benefits extend to low-risk patients is a subject of debate. The Grand Rounds discussions, Dr. Suzanne J. Barron, Director of Interventional Cardiology Research, Leahy Hospital and Medical Center in Burlington, Massachusetts, and Suyoshi Kaneko, Surgical Director of the Structural Heart Program at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts. Discussed a real patient, a 62 year old man with symptomatic aortic stenosis and several comorbid conditions yet considered at low risk for surgical death. In their assessment, both Drs. Barron and Koneko recommend CT imaging as the next step to determine the patient's candidacy for TABR. If the patient met anatomical criteria, Dr. Barron would engage the patient in the deliberate shared decision making process to ensure that his values drove an informed choice between the two procedures. Because the patient is relatively young and very likely to need a second valve procedure sometime in the future, Dr. Koneko would work with the heart team to highlight the durability and subsequent valve replacement challenges with the transcatheter procedure. Both discussants agree that the patient is likely to have a good outcome, whatever procedure he chooses. And continuing on the theme of cardiopulmonary disease, the April in the Clinic review is on pulmonary hypertension. Read it to remind yourself of the pathophysiology of pulmonary hypertension and current diagnostic and therapeutic approaches. The article includes links to resources, information for patients, and the opportunity to earn CMA and MOC credit. As the initial COVID-19 vaccine trials ended, there was much discussion about how to best manage trial participants who had received placebo. Should they be prioritized for vaccination? Should they continue to be followed without vaccination to enable longer follow-up of the safety and effectiveness of vaccination? Next is a research and reporting methods article from authors from the National Institutes of Health and colleagues who suggest ways that we can learn by continuing to follow the vaccine trial participants who originally received placebo after they ultimately received the COVID-19 vaccine they mathematically demonstrate that long-term placebo-controlled vaccine efficacy can be estimated even after the placebo group has been vaccinated. While less precise than estimates from a standard trial where the placebo group remains unvaccinated, this proposed approach permits assessment of the durability of vaccine efficacy and whether the vaccine eventually becomes harmful to some people. The authors explain that deferred vaccination, if done open-label, may lead to riskier behavior in the unblinded original vaccine group, confounding estimates of long-term vaccine efficacy. Hence, deferred vaccination via blinded crossover where the vaccine group receives placebo and vice versa is a preferred way to assess vaccine durability and potential delayed harm. Deferred vaccination allows placebo recipients timely access to the vaccine when it would no longer be proper to maintain them on placebo. It still allows important insights about immunologic and clinical effectiveness over time. The article is very interesting reading and should inform the design of future vaccine trials. In 2015, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services implemented hospital performance measures based on the Medicare Severe Sepsis and Septic Shock Early Management Bundle, commonly referred to as SEP1. CMS requires hospitals to collect and report data on their adherence to a multi-component sepsis treatment bundle, including blood cultures, early antibiotics, serial lactate measurement, intravenous fluids, vasopressors for refractory hypotension, and documentation of a patient's response to treatment. To be considered compliant, hospitals must include all treatments in the bundle. Whether or not SEP1 improves patient outcomes has been uncertain. Researchers from the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine studied electronic health record data for 54,225 patient encounters between January 2013 and December 2017 for adults with sepsis who were hospitalized through the emergency department to evaluate the effect of Step 1 on treatment patterns and patient outcomes. They found that two years after its implementation, Step 1 was associated with variable changes in process measures with the greatest effect being an increase in lactate measurement within three hours of sepsis onset. There were small increases in antibiotic administration and fluid administration within three hours of onset. There was no change in vasopressor administration. There was a small increase in ICU admissions, but no changes in mortality or discharge to home. According to the researchers, these findings suggest that it may be helpful for clinicians to have some discretion regarding step one implementation on the basis of patient characteristics so that they may focus on the aspects of sepsis care that most directly drive improvements in patients' actual outcomes. Avoiding hospital admission is often a priority for frail or older persons. Efforts to develop services to provide hospital-level care at home have accelerated during the past years, the COVID 19 pandemic challenges the capacity of healthcare facilities and increases the susceptibility of older persons to the risks associated with hospitals. However, the safety and clinical effectiveness of hospital level care at home remains to be determined. Researchers from the Newfield Department of Population Health at the University of Oxford. Randomly assigned, more than 1,000 sick older persons referred for a hospital admission at one of nine community and hospital sites in the United Kingdom to either admission, avoidance, hospital-at-home care with a comprehensive geriatric assessment or traditional hospitalization. The assessment allowed a geriatric care team to evaluate patient characteristics and contribute to the care plan. Participants were eligible if they were 65 years or older and all had complex medical issues but did not require emergency treatment, palliative care, or surgery. At six months, researchers assessed both groups to determine whether participants still lived at home. The researchers found that outcomes were similar between the two groups. At six-month follow-up, 78.6% of participants in the hospital-at-home group versus 75.3% of the participants in the hospital group were living at home. 16.9 versus 17.7% had died, and 5.7 versus 8.7% were in long-term residential care. According to the study authors, these findings suggest that a health system that includes admission avoidance by providing hospital-level care at home with comprehensive geriatric assessment can create additional acute healthcare capacity for certain older people who need hospital-level care. COVID-19 has revealed stark health inequities, but many existing studies have been limited by small samples or lack of reliable clinical data to provide a detailed picture of COVID-19 related inequities across multiple racial ethnic groups. The authors of the next article set out to compare age sex adjusted relative risk of COVID-19 testing, diagnosed cases, hospitalizations, and intensive level care among Hispanic, Black, Asian, and Pacific Islander persons to white persons before and after adjusting for comorbidities, including overweight and obesity. The study was a retrospective cohort study that used electronic health record data from Kaiser Permanente, Southern California, a large integrated healthcare system whose membership is approximately representative of the population in its service region. The researchers identified over 47,000 adults with COVID-19 diagnosed March 1st through July 31st, 2020, who had been enrolled in the system for at least 12 months and had race ethnicity data available. About 9.4% of identified cases were hospitalized and 3.1% required intensive level care. Patients who required hospitalization and intensive care were on average older, more likely to be obese, and to have a greater comorbidity index than COVID-19 patients who did not experience these events. The researchers also observed disparities across race and ethnicity for all outcomes before and after adjusting for age, sex, comorbidities, and body mass index. Patients of color were slightly more likely to be tested, and if tested, to test positive compared to white patients, but substantially more likely to be hospitalized and to receive intensive level care. While Hispanic patients had the highest relative risks of being tested and being diagnosed with COVID-19, Compared to white patients, they, unlike Pacific Islander, Black African Americans, and Asian Americans, were not at a higher risk for more severe disease than white patients. These findings confirm those from earlier in the pandemic that suggest COVID-19 affects Hispanic, Black, African American, and Asian people disproportionately. The researchers demonstrate that even after adjusting for known COVID-19 risk factors such as comorbidities and body mass index, People of color continue to have substantially high risk of hospitalization and requiring intensive care compared to white people. Next is an interesting and sobering case report that documents apparent SARS-CoV-2 reinfection in a patient who is status post liver transplant. That brings us to some of the web-only content. First is the latest episode of the Consult Guys. In this episode, Gino and Howard answer questions about how to prevent perioperative stroke in a patient at high risk for this complication. And the latest episode of Annals on Call focuses on who is at risk for bad outcomes following an apparent syncope event. In addition to providing key points for hospitals from recent Annals articles, this month's Annals for Hospitals features a brief commentary on the use of direct acting anticoagulants in patients with cancer. And if you're involved in teaching, You may find it useful to take a look at Annals for Educators. You'll find brief tips for incorporating Annals articles into your teaching activities. And finally, there is the latest Annals Graphic Medicine feature. This one addresses a patient's decision whether to start PrEP to prevent HIV infection. That brings us to the end of this podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll go to Annals.org to look at some of the new articles I've highlighted, plus some older ones you may have missed. Thanks to Beth Jenkinson and Andrew Langman for their technical support.